It's Jonathan with Let's Get Oral. Today, Bill and I are really stoked to share this next episode with you since we had the pleasure to interview Dr. Michael Glogauer. Michael is a brilliant research physician and entrepreneur who's made significant contributions to the field of oral immunology. Throughout the first half of this episode, we take a deep dive into the current landscape of oral immunology and how we've come to better understand the role of neutrophils when it comes to managing inflammation throughout different stages of periodontitis and perioimplantitis. In the second half of this episode, Michael sheds more light on the salivary diagnostic technology that will help dentists detect inflammation in a non-invasive manner. You've been warned, there's a lot going on in this episode, a lot of geeky mouth nerds going at it, but we hope you enjoy it just as much as we did. Now let's get to the show. Let's get oral. So thank you for being with us today, Dr. Glogauer. Um, I'm thrilled to have you as always. Uh, if you could give us a little bit of background on your journey with the neutrophil and how it led you into the diagnostic space. Sure. So um, firstly, thank you for having me and definitely call me Michael. Um, <laughs> only my mother, only my mother calls me Dr. Glogauer. Um, so, um, so, um, you know, so I did my, uh, I did my dentistry and I did my combined PhD and periodontal surgical specialty at the University of Toronto. And my PhD really was focused on oral physiology and mainly the role of the fibroblast and mechanotransduction. How does how do the tissues in the in how do connective tissues respond to forces at sort of the biochemical at, at the cellular level? And then I was fortunate enough to do a um, a postdoctoral fellowship at uh, Harvard Medical School with a extremely talented and phenomenal science scientist by the name of Tom Stossel who was uh, one of the sort of actin cytoskeleton um, experts on the planet. And uh, we studied neutrophils and, and sort of how the cytoskeleton of the neutrophil was, um, was regulated, particularly in, during the process of chemotaxis or its ability to get into tissues. And so that's when I sort of fell in love with the neutrophil. And while I was there, this was around the late 1990s, early 2000s, I was always... Um, I, I became aware of and was always sort of perplexed by the fact that infection, um, that if you had an infected tissue, the first cells were, that sort of entered that tissue were neutrophils. Hey, everyone. Before we dive deep into this episode, I wanted to quickly define what neutrophils are. Neutrophils are a type of white blood cell that work on the front lines of our immune system. During the early stages of inflammation, neutrophils are one of the first responders that migrate from the bloodstream to the site of injury after being recruited. These white blood cells are highly mobile and diverse, which makes them essential for fighting microbial infections. But at the time, I was also aware that uh, there, were, there was a constant influx of neutrophils into the mouth, even when there was no infection. Uh, but anybody who didn't work on the mouth just sort of accepted that when you had neutrophils in a tissue, it's because there was infection there. Exactly. And so um, I, I sort of found that really, really interesting. And that that sort of that was my interest in the neutrophil. But it also twigged me to the the, the possible use of the neutrophil as a um, a biomarker for the development of oral inflammation and perhaps periodontal disease and periimplantitis. And and so that that's that's what sort of born that that was when the whole idea sort of came 
came into my head. And I sort of joke with my children uh, that, um, so I, I have, I, as you know, I have nine children, ages 29 down to uh, 11. And Amazing. so um, when I talk to them, because we're actually going through the FDA right now, we're just in the final phases of the, the test. And some of them remember me first coming up with the idea when they were about seven or eight years old. But they, you can sort of track the, the evolution of the based on the age of my children, <laughs> which, you know, they make fun. That's they sort amazing. of mock me about it, that it's taken so long to get to this point. But uh, and, and the, the truth is, I sort of tell them, you know, I develop, I'm sure as many of your listeners know, like developing a product is labor intensive, takes a long time. But you know what? It takes a lot longer when you have other jobs. <laughs> uh, yes, and, and that, everybody and supporting you right? has other jobs as well. Yeah, a hundred percent. So you know, uh, but you know, it's it's been a journey, and I appreciate the journey. And hopefully, within the, within the next year, it should be on the market, as we'll, we'll talk about. And uh, it's sort of been a labor of love, and we'll sort of see see what happens and see what value there is in it. I I really appreciate you kind of speaking to the we all when all everybody in inflammation space and potentially all immune, innate immune researchers think of the neutrophil presence as being the the problem child, um, accosting the tissues with their own inflammatory process. But in the oral cavity, as you well know, as you've pretty much defined and I followed suit, was uh, really in health, if, if they're not able to come through the tissues and respond in a natural, healthy way, um, then we have a different type of inflammation. And so we have, we, we do know that genetics kind of predisposes people to uh, potentially having issues in this area, which is where we get leukocyte adhesion deficiency, for example. But you, we know that there are kind of different uh, levels of genetic profile for that specific disease. And I wonder if there is an interperson variability that you've seen um, that you've been able to kind of get around with this assay. Cause I think that's been the, the big hurdle with salivary diagnostics in general is to right. address this intervariability. Right. So I, so I want to say one thing before, just to make it clear. So um, we published a paper somewhere in the, maybe the last five years, I can't remember when, certainly pre COVID um, where we looked at, actually we did it in the mouse where we actually looked that, while I've just sort of said that the mouth is this unique environment, we have this constant influx of neutrophils, even in health, but maybe the level's different. The same thing's actually happening in other tissues, right? And you can do that in a mouse because you can go into the colon and you can look for neutrophils in a healthy mouse versus a mouse that has colitis. You can go into the peritoneum, which is usually relatively sterile and immune cell free, and you can find really, really low levels of neutrophils and certainly their uh, macrophages there. And and it, it was... Um, you know that there there is a body of work um, looking at something called parainflammation. So you can have completely sterile immune cell free environment. But the concept of parainflammation is is that you know as we're all working walking on this earth and we're constantly exposed to all sorts of uh, uh, bacteria and, and um, other microbiological uh, creatures, <laughs> um, they, they 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 invade and they're present. And I mean, ultimately, health is the ability of um, our immune systems to live in harmony, as it were, with whatever um, sort of uh, commensals and other uh, microbiome elements that are that are there. Because certainly, 
you know, the, you know, mammals are essentially tubes with an opening at each end. We spend most of our talking about one of those ends, but you know, there's, there's eight, there's eight bacterial cells for every cell in the entire organism, right? So there's almost like eight of you living on the inside uh, of that tube and health is essentially, and the lack of pathologic inflammation is the ability of your immune system to live in harmony with, 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 all, the, with all those, with all those different creatures. And so, um, so, you know, that leads me to your question, which is what, um, what sort of drives one person's um, inability to sort of to ma maintain a healthy environment versus another person where the immune, the immune system is sort of quiet and able to live in harmony. And, and there's a couple of things, you know, there's obviously the person's uh, immune phenotype, how they're, you know, genetically, how are they going to, and there's also the actual who makes up the, those eight in, those eight cells for every cell in your body? What are the you know what, what is it? What are the constituents of that microbiome? And then when you put that all together, that's how you sort of end up with these phenotypes. I think you know looking at neutrophils per se, and while there there are certainly differences, what we've been able to see in various patient populations that we've looked at in the mouth. So let's say we're looking at patients who have gingivitis, experimental gingivitis patients, or patients that have, you know, uh, stage one and two periodontal disease versus stage three and four periodontal disease, that if you clinically place the patients into those buckets, that the neutrophil levels, while there is variability, are certainly fall within a range. And so you can definitely, now the one exception to that, which is really, really interesting, is the disease periimplantitis. So periimplantitis is dental implants where um, they become, they look like they're getting periodontal disease. But um, based on a number of biomarkers or clinical outputs that we look at, you can have a single implant that has an infection around it, and it can generate an inflammatory response, say neutrophil levels, that are 10 to 20 times higher in a person who has wall-to-wall -wall or tooth-to-tooth um, periodontal disease. So the inflammatory response is much more robust. So, and, and my hypothesis, what I think is actually going on there, while it starts off as an inflammatory process, and you get uh, a microbiome, you get bacterial um, species in there that help promote the inflammation, similar to what you get in a periodontal disease. At the same time, you actually get a foreign body reaction happening at the same time, because those immune cells are coming into contact with the metal and it's setting off a cascade that really looks like it. So you have two processes going on simultaneously and that's why the information is so severe. And, and in some interesting research that I'm particularly excited about, we actually can see that um, the inflammatory profiles in circulation changes quite dramatically. And it's quite, it's much more robust in periimplantitis than it is in periodontal disease, for example. So, um, you know, so I, I guess the answer to your question is, while there is um, heterogeneity within the various populations, you can identify the population, say, between gingivitis and periodontitis or periodontitis stages one and two versus three and four or periimplantitis, for example. Now, I, we've also looked at oral neutrophils as a biomarker in patients who are recovering from bone marrow transplants. It's me again. I quickly want to explain the importance of neutrophils when it comes to bone marrow transplants. Bone marrow transplants involve the engraftment of bone-derived stem cells from a healthy individual into a patient. A fundamental goal for successful bone marrow transplants is that transplanted stem cells are capable of producing effective red blood cells and white blood cells such as these neutrophils. Sustained production of stem cells that produce effective neutrophils is key 
for the success of such a procedure. So in some work I did maybe 10 or 12 years ago, we, the hypothesis was that um, if, if you take, we, we did this uh, study in both children and we did it in adults as well. And, and if you, um, I really wanted to understand the, the oral neutrophil per se. And I thought that the best way to do this was to use a human model, a model where you could wipe out the entire bone marrow in, put in a graft because obviously there'd be no neutrophils coming into the mouth. Right. And then what I was particularly interested in, would you get neutrophils coming into the mouth? The timing of that compared to when they actually showed up in the blood, because bone marrow uh, transplants are deemed to be successful when you have, two, uh, depending on two or three days of consecutive detection of neutrophils in the blood. And what was really interesting is that we could map the dynamics of the decrease in neutrophils as the bone marrow was ablated and there was no more supply of neutrophils coming. And uh, not surprisingly, the neutrophils persisted in the mouth longer than they did in the blood. So the neutrophils completely disappeared from the blood. Yeah, there were still some neutrophils hanging around, coming into the mouth, present in the mouth. And then as um, as uh, the, the bone, the graft was put in, what was really, really interesting, so everything bottomed out, but what was really fascinating is that the neutrophils showed up in the mouth before they showed up in the blood. So, you know, maybe because I was naive, I, I thought that's not what my our hypothesis is that they would show up in the blood first because they've, they've got to go from the bone marrow to the blood. You've got to be able to catch them there. And then at some point when you got a, a, a fine, a, a, a sort of a critical level of neutrophils in the blood, they would start showing up in these tissues like the mouth or the gut, except the opposite happened. They started showing up in the mouth first. Now, now that I'm, I'm going to tell you why that makes sense is because I think that the, the host is such that, again, remember that tube with all those eight bacteria for every cell? Your immune system has to deal with that. And obviously, when everything's bottomed out, those patients are extremely uh, susceptible to infections. So the first thing the host, the first thing the immune system is going to do is repopulate those tissues with the cells that are going to protect the host. Right. What are they doing? They're preventing invasion of the bacteria into, into the body across that, that epithelial barrier. And so they show up in the mouth. But really so I'm just going to ask, so the mouth is the first place you looked, but would they show up in all of those tissues that are in the tube? Yeah. Right. So, right. So we did, we did it. We did, we did the exact same study in, my, in mice and they show up in the, in the mouth at the same time as they're showing up in the gut. Okay. So the whole tube is being repopulated because that's, that's where the bacteria are. And it's at the same time, so the, the the dynamics are the same. And you know, as we'll get, maybe we'll get into it. That you know, the mouth is a great place to study anywhere along that tube. The same thing. What's <laughs> happening in the mouth oftentimes is also happening in the gut, right? And so well, I, I, well, I'm going to argue with you on that because there's a whole different environment um, happening in the gut. Where there's a mucin layer that is incredibly. Sure. Different. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I, yeah. I'm going to fight yeah. you on that, I, and that's a fair point. <laughs> Um, and there are different yeah. cell types. I mean, I, I don't see the, the tasting dendritic cells in the mouth so much as you do in the intestines and, and so on. So I think there there's nuance right. there, but I, I do appreciate that the neutrophils... Okay, so we thought, or I definitely thought, that the neutrophils would be traversing the vasculature. So how are they directly coming from um, the bone marrow well, so, into so these mucosal tissues? Well, they, they are coming through the vasculature for sure. They're just not pooling. They're just not collecting there. So a neutrophil enters in the bloodstream and it's like a magnet. It gets pulled straight into those tissues so okay. quickly that it doesn't really collect there fast enough for you to be able to detect it at a high enough level uh, on a blood cell counter. The Heisenberg right? principle so, of neutrophil trafficking? 
<laughs> exactly. It's, it's Sorry, I just got real nervous. <laughs> no, no, that's great. <laughs> uh, wow, but, but that's the, really the, cool. But the really cool thing is, um, so we sort of developed. So when would you start collecting them in the in the blood? And the mount, and what it turned out is, so sort of think of the mouth as an example, as a bucket. So how filled does the how full does the bucket need to get? before the cells no longer need to be going there preferentially, they can sort of start collecting. And, and, and that amount of time, which could be based on a number of things, this, in theory, the surface area, the amount of cells needed, versus how quickly, the, the how efficient the bone marrow, the new bone marrow is in pumping out the cells. And what we showed is, is that the time between when we had something called oral engraftment, the time that they show up in the mouth, compared to the day when they start showing up the blood, that distance actually predicted who was going to get an infection. So you could predict. So when the distance was really close, so you had oral engraftment, a blood engraftment, those patients had a five to six-fold increased risk of getting, in, getting a, 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 an infection versus the longer, those patients. Now, we so, really so they had a, a higher risk. Time. So the, the people that are populating their oral tissues slower are at higher risk? Yeah, well, yeah. So, in other words... Oh, no. The, the, sorry, the neutrophils say, populating say, the blood after the, the oral engraftment, right? That That's right. slow. Exactly, exactly. So, in other words, in theory, the bucket in the mouth maybe was shallower. Right. So, it, it, it didn't need... It didn't need that... It didn't accept as many neutrophils, and maybe that explains why. I mean, that's one hypothesis. We didn't really spend a lot of time going into it, Um because we sort of jumped to other things. and But we did that both in children and in adults. And in t it's interesting in the adults, because maybe because of the way we did the study, my, my student actually found it too difficult because the patients were dying and she found it too hard to deal with the adult patients. She stopped and then we went back a year later and we could actually do mortality. We actually sort of like see, saw who survived. So it wasn't, so that distance, not only was in who's going to get an infection, but it actually predicted who was going to survive. Wild. So, Right. And then sort of with the same group now, we've actually got a paper which we've just submitted to a clinical infectious disease where we actually showed, um, that, and I'm jumping ahead, but we actually showed that it's the type of neutrophils that are in circulation. So that we, I think, I know we've discussed this a lot, but yes. there's a, we've, we've published a few papers on these prime neutrophils. So there's actually, it was believed that in theory, all the neutrophils in circulation are one phenotype. But what we showed is there are actually two phenotypes, that there's a primed or uh, ready to go population, and then the more of a resting population, and usually in everybody walking around, that prime population is about ten to fifteen percent of of all your neutrophils. Do you where do you and think that primed um, population is originating? So in mice, I can tell you it originates in the in the bone marrow. So okay. if we induced a, an acute inflammatory, like if we induce a peritonitis in a mouse or a periodontal disease in a mouse. The prime, the prime neutrophils, which make up about 1% to 2% of the neutrophils in a normal resting bone marrow, jump to a, can, during an acute inflammatory response, can go to 60 or 70%. So the neutrophil starts pump, the bone marrow starts pumping out these cells at really high levels. So during an acute inflammatory response, that 10 or 15% can go up to 80 or 90% in circulation. So, so that's how long what's happening do on the primed end. neutrophils persist? So, once you have been exposed to an acute, you then you've resolved. You you drop down to eight to ten percent. Are they maintained yeah. like B cells, it, it, or do they 
diminish after over time or they you know they they diminish pretty quickly so you know we we in a, in a well-controlled mouse peritonitis you know the you get the peak neutrophil response within uh within 36 72 within three days and then everything sort of starts to go back to normal everything resolves you get the different macrophages coming you get the m2s coming in everything sort of resolves pretty quickly and those neutrophils will recede pretty quickly interesting we can see these same prime cells in experimental gingivitis in humans obviously we didn't look at the bone marrow but we can see them in the blood and they sort of behave in much in, in much the same way um, do do they disappear completely after the patient is resolved from experimental gingivitis, or do they persist? Um, so, inter- so they go back to the normal levels okay. pretty quickly. But what's really interesting, and in, I think we've discussed this, but, but what's really interesting about the experimental gingivitis when we do it is that the neutrophils, even though res- even though there's resolution of the clinical signs of inflammation the oral neutrophil counts do not go back to normal with the clinical resolution of the inflammation. In other words, and I, always, I, I still don't, I don't really understand this, but it, it happens consistently every single time we run the model but, uh, in how patients. Long is have, that, how long have you done the follow-up? Two to three weeks or, or beyond? Oh, no, not beyond. Okay. Right. And so, I mean, that brings us back. We're really interested in seeing the memory aspect and right. Hadjushengalus's uh uh, sort of innate immune memory, and I think that that actually may may be what's going on there. But uh, it, it's certainly an interesting, it's sort of an interesting uh, finding which we really have to follow up on. But it's also it's perplexing that it, it takes about a week to two weeks for it to just start to go back to normal after the resolution, after the reinstitution of oral hygiene and the diminishment of the clinical signs of inflammation. But uh, but but I, I just want to finish up the one thing. So, so the yeah. prime neutrophils in in so what we showed is is that in in our latest study, which is really exciting, is we show that the primed levels of neutrophils, if if the patient when they go into their conditioning regimen before everything's wiped out, if at that time they've got more than ten percent of their prime neutrophils present, they are much more resistant to getting an infection later. Versus if they've got less than 10%, they're very susceptible to getting an infection. And it's a little perplexing because this is just immediately before they get everything wiped out. But then everything gets wiped out. So in theory, you'd think that everybody's starting from some baseline. But it may have something to do with the, if you've got more than 15%, you may have neutrophils that are in the tissues Maybe the tissues get filled, filled up, and you have more neutrophils there present, which may prevent you from getting some of these infections. Versus if you've got less than ten percent. But again, that's conjecture, and there's more studies we have to do on do that. Do you but. think, be, because you know, uh, you know that um, giving a mouse perio, for example, will prime their neutrophils? Do you think that having some level of oral inflammation prior to your transplant might be beneficial? Wow. <laughs> So, so now you're getting me to the next level, okay. because uh, in these same in these same populations where we we looked because um, because I'm the head of dental oncology at Princess Margaret Cancer Center where these patients are treated, um, every single one of these patients gets a full dental examination before they're cleared to go ahead with their bone marrow transplant. So we have full dental records. We have a full, and because we take radiographs on the patients, we have a panorex. We can actually stage and grade 
their periodontal disease. So, so for those of us who are not periodontal, who are not dentists out there, there was a, there's been a change in the way you stage and grade periodontal disease. It's, I mean, it, and you can do it quickly on a, actually on a radiograph, because remember what that's actually telling you is is that the patient's history of periodontal disease. Because when they're going into their transplant, they're actually for the, they don't have active inflammation per se. But what what we actually do is by staging and grading their periodontals, we know what their their history of periodontal disease is and has been. And what we showed, this is really unbelievable. <laughs> I couldn't believe it when we first. So we, we looked at like about 100 patients prospectively. So we followed them along. And what we showed is, is that their, um, their periodontal disease history and the severity of it determined outcome. It actually determined survival. It determined their propensity to get infections. And it's not that they had actually active periodontal disease when they went in because they were cleared. It was something about their phenotype that made them more susceptible to whatever was going on from an immune standpoint. So that's one thing. Here's the other amazing thing. Um, and, and so we looked at that in 100 patients prospectively, but then we looked at it at, at more than 1,000 patients retrospectively in a separate study, exactly the same thing. So we sort of prospectively and retrospectively. So you're saying that anybody who had perio but was resolved and not active was somehow protected and determined survival. No, 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 no. So what I'm saying is okay. if you had this, a history of periodontal disease, it's a it no didn't go. matter. You, you could be born again as an, an amazing dental, dental health person. It, it didn't matter. You, you were, and, and it's because it was something about your phenotype, whatever was driving your propensity. But, but here's, and, and so we're looking at the micro, we're looking, we're trying to look at the microbiome, but here's the amazing thing is that, um, we also looked at the the risk of you getting becoming septic during um, during so oftentimes these patients get infections and the blood is cultured and the primary organism is known that's causing it and the weirdest thing happened in, a, in a, we, when we looked at the data is that the patients who had um, who had a history of periodontal disease the more severe that it was actually a dose response so um, had a had a greater risk of getting, so if you had periodontal disease, um, you were less likely, in fact, almost never, did you get uh, the primary cultural organism being strep gurinans. Okay, so if you, if you had periodontal disease, a history of periodontal disease, and you got an infection, it was not because of strep gurinans. It was usually sort of some gut bacteria. And, but if you had no history of periodontal disease, you almost always got a strep gurinans infection. And so the so we're thinking, oh boy, periodontal. Uh, now I'm going to show how stupid we were. I'm going to say <laughs> periodontal disease protect protects you from getting these really bad strep verdans infections. So we go to our infectious disease collaborator and we show it to him, like, like this is crazy. How are we going to publish this? What is it? He goes, no, no, no. Strep verdans. Those are the easy infections. Like those are super easy to treat. No, no problem. The the issue is when you get infections with all these other things. Those are the hard ones. So in other words. The strep viridans infections are not the problem. It's the other bacteria. And if you had periodontal disease, you were more likely to get these other bacteria. So what's going on? So, you know, we've, we've got this conjecture. We have some ideas. But we think maybe that if you've had periodontal disease, you're constantly leaking strep viridans into your blood, hmm. which means you have antibodies that will protect you against strep viridans right? Yeah. But if you've never had periodontal disease, you, you know, you're kind of naive to it. And so maybe that actually is that that could be one explanation. 
we, we have to check that and we're doing some stuff to try to figure that. But, but what's really interesting, it, you know, I, I was part of the hundred periodontists from around the world who put together the new yes. um, staging and grinning for periodontal disease, which was like, at the time, I, you know, I, there was a lot of pushback and how good is it? And I thought, oh, you know, this could be pretty good. But when I show you the graph of the dose curve for survival and for the bacteria, it's actually, it goes one, two, three, and four. And it's like a perfect dose. And I'm like, this is amazing. Like there's actually something to this, right? Like it, it actually, because no, no way before when we were putting things as um, gingivitis, mild, moderate, severe periodontitis, I mean, those are kind of nebulous. It, it not, they're not actually real buckets that are actually based on objective as much as the way the new, the new criteria are set up. So I'm, I'm a totally believer in this new system and it allows us to do dose response curves based on the amount of oral infection or periodontal disease that you have. So, I mean, that, that's a side, a side value. That's incredible. Um, I, yes, I have so many follow-up questions, um, but I wanted to kind of touch back on the diagnostic piece. So when, when we're te- talking about diagnostic in this space, we're talking about oral inflammation and the levels of inflammation that you have that kind of parody this scale of gingivitis to periotypes. Um, and... So is this, I mean, I know the answer, but I want you to talk more in depth about it. Is this based on um, neutrophil phenotypes or is it based on the numbers of what, how is it evaluated and what do you think it means for the person uh, who's doing the diagnostic? What, what value do you think it adds to their service? Right. Okay, so let me see if I can construct an answer that makes sense. <laughs> but I, I'm sort of, I'm sort of, I'm freewheeling it here. But yes, um, do it. But I, but I would say this. Um, so the the concept that we put behind this oral levels of neutrophils is not so much that it's a diagnostic test for oh you've got gingivitis or oh you've got stage one or two or three or four. I, I believe it is really about something. The, the the term we've coined is oral inflammatory load. So if you believe that we're this tube and you've got eight bacteria for every cell in the body and your immune system is essentially trying to protect that sort of epithelial uh, interface between the biofilm and the inside of your body. And really, ultimately, that's the most important thing. I mean, its role is to make sure those bacteria don't gain access. And ultimately, I don't think that a periodontal disease person, like if you had somebody who had really, really severe gingivitis, where there was constant ulceration of the epithelial, gingival crevice epithelium, and there was constant passage of, um, there was constant inflammation, there was constant passage of bacteria into the, into the system, but you didn't get any bone loss, I would argue that's worse than having, you know, five or six, six millimeter pockets somewhere where you're losing a little bit of bone and you can't keep it together. I think we, 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 we're so, I think we have to be careful not to focus on the mouth and oh, a little bit of bone loss and maybe a couple, losing a couple teeth versus constant inflammation and constant ingress of bacteria through that barrier into the body. If we, we do believe that there's some link between the mouth and the rest. And, and so oral inflammatory load is the same I sort of, it's sort of analogous to, if, you know, if you think you've got a fever, you think you've got an infection, you go to a doctor, they take your blood and they look at your white blood cell count. 
And all that white blood cell count tells you, like, yeah, you, based on this, it looks like you have an infection. Now we've got to figure out where the infection is and right. how to treat it and how it's relevant. Same thing in the mouth. It's like a 30-second oral rinse. It tells you, oh, you've got an elevated level of white blood cells in your mouth that are beyond the norm. Perfect. Now we've got to figure out what's going on, how is it relevant to the rest of the body. Right. And it's not, you know, it's... I, you know, it's a bit heretical for me to say this is a periodontist, but it's not so much about the bone and all the rest of it when you're trying to think about the organism as a whole. Very nice. I love it. And I think, I, I mean, we're, um, I would say I would like to see this type of test paired with the, um, the markers that we've been using to assess the bacteria in the mouth, because I think that only in the context, context of active inflammation is um, measuring something like P. gingivalis meaningful. And so, um, because right. we know that, that, you know, this particular pathogen is only a pathogen in inflammatory settings. And so I think that there's a lot of potential for this to, not only to be a chair side, you know, quick and dirty assessment of your active, potentially active inflammatory profile, but also kind of used in combination to really um, dial down as to what might be happening there. Right. And, and I said, you know, on the microbiome front, you know, on the bacteria front, I sort of feel some, again, I'm not a microbiologist. I just <laughs> pretend, but I, I would say that, you know, it's, you know, there are about what, four to 700 different individuals in our mouths. And I, I, I sometimes, it's, it's not that P. gingivalis is there because there are lots exactly. of people who have perfectly healthy mouths who have P. gingivalis. Yes. But I, I think what's interesting is, and that's why I sort of feel like next generation sequencing or even shotgun sequencing to actually look at the distribution of the commensals and the pathobionts. It's actually the entire population, not how much P. gingivalis you have. Agreed. It's Agreed. The, the shifts in the different characters that are actually actually more relevant, right? And so then when you pair that into what's happening on the immune front, I think that you start to, you're, you'll be able to create a better picture to understand what's driving the shifts between, again, inflammation on and inflammation off. Agreed. Right? I couldn't because agree that, more. That, that's what's relevant. That's what's, you know, the, the measures we use as dentists to measure the presence of periodontal disease and diagnose periodontal disease, they're all post hoc, oh, you had periodontal disease destruction because they're all right, which is why I know there are other there are other companies out there that have, for, for example, using MMP8 or other other inflammatory markers. And yes. you know, whenever I talk to people about MMP8, great marker. You know where the MMP8 comes from? Neutrophils. So yes. the neutrophil have to be there. Yes. Right. So that's why I sort of joke like, let's just measure the neutrophil, and we don't have to yes. get fancy. Because yes. they're, they're, it's much cheaper to measure a neutrophil than to, to measure an enzyme. But, um, you know, I, I, I think that that's, that that's sort of our approach. Um, my next question is really about what do you think, as somebody who's been working with oral and blood neutrophils for quite some time, do you think that the oral neutrophils go back into the vasculature? Right. So, um so I think so. There have been some studies that have shown, certainly in animal models, that you can get some retrograder neutrophils going back. And I think I don't think they're going back from the mouth necessarily back into the vasculature, but certainly within the inflamed periodontium, some mm -hmm. of them may, may certainly be going back into the vasculature, maybe even heading to lymph nodes. I mean, they're you know I. I 
I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody comes through and shows and shows that that that's that's happening. I will say, and mm. uh, and I know we want to sort of stay neutral centric, but we we've, we've sort <laughs> of been, been spending can, a little. You can go out of the neutral. Uh, I, I can go, go ahead. <laughs> good because we, 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 we've got some absolutely phenomenal data showing um, a, a very unique T uh, T helper subset that's only present in pathology. That's only present in um, cardiovascular disease, rheumatoid arthritis where uh, these, these T helper cells go a little bit rogue, they lose some receptors, and they actually turn into these essentially like out-of-control pro-inflammatory uh, cells. And, and so um, there's about six or seven papers on them looking at cardiovascular disease, looking at rheumatoid arthritis and, uh, and uh, viral infections and autoimmune. And so we were looking at them. They're present in patients who have periodontal disease and periimplantitis. And so here's the relevance. You know, people say, oh, there's a link between periodontal disease and cardiovascular disease or and these other inflammatory conditions. Right. And I, I sort of feel like this is the, I, my hypothesis is I get excited by these things. People in my lab sometimes look at me funny, but I, I would say that they're kind of like the smoking gum. And it's not that periodontal disease per se is causing all these things. It's just that the underlying phenotype, the underlying mechanism, the immune regulator are the same for these mm -hmm. various conditions. And the cool thing about these cells is that with peri-implantitis, as, as I've told my PhD student who's working on it, is that it's the, out of all the conditions where this has been going, it's the only one that's treatable, curable, without having to give drugs. Not that you can even treat those, cure those others with drugs. Because in peri-implantitis, even a, a person with one implant that's completely infected gets a huge buildup of these cells in circulation and in the tissue. And you know what? You can cure periimplantitis by removing the implant. Right. And so we've removed the implant in some of these patients. Now, I, I told them we, we don't want to look for two months. But my hypothesis is, is that they maybe come back in two months and we'll, be, we'll get some information. Either the population will be completely back to normal or it won't, which suggests it could be a biomarker and, you know, that is present even before these patients get some of these diseases. So it, it'll be interesting to sort of see, see, see what manifests. Fascinating. So um, back, back to the diagnostic really quick, the neutrophil oral inflammatory load, um, does that, is that reflective of your blood profile in any way? Could we maybe get a quick read using our saliva on our vascular health? Um, so I'm, I'm involved in a startup that's using saliva to um, develop uh, screening, screening tests for patients with uh, cardiovascular disease. And um, while they're, they're not looking at the neutrophil per se, they're looking, we, we have sort of a, a, a list of biomarkers that we're looking at that... Um, show up in saliva. So there are, there are a lot of things that make their way into the mouth through the periodontium um, that, uh, that are useful reporters of what's happening systemically. And, and so, the so if we look deep enough, the neutrophils certainly may be affected. And I, I know you've done that. We, we've sort of phenotyped the neutrophils and shown that there are different neutrophils, as I said, in the blood, but there are also different neutrophils in the, um, in the mouth. And certainly by phenotyping these neutrophils, you get a sense of the, the, the activation state, uh, both in the mouth and possibly what's happening in, in the circulation. 
Right, right. And going back to kind of your investigation of the bacterial profile and the inflammatory load and looking at uh, some of those um, constituents in the blood, I'm going to hit the the blood microbiome real quick. So I know I wrote a review last year that I I was really um, trying to get the oral health field to kind of blow open the space because I think that it is important to get um, the, the blood microbiome has been theorized to pretty much exist mostly in the neutrophils and it is the, in a horal, uh, sorry, in a healthy profile, you're, you're looking at the, um, healthy blood microbiome being predominantly oral and derm derived. So from your skin and yeah. oral cavity primarily. Right. And when you get some inflammatory pathology that changes, um, but in that, in the perio paper that has looked at the blood microbiome, they only looked at intracellular. So looking at both compartments, both kind of extracellular to see right. if there's some slight sepsis and, and intracellular to get kind of a read on those populations. And right. I'm hoping that you're looking at all of those pieces. <laughs> yeah. So, so we are. So for example, um, so you've got to be really careful looking at the blood microbiome papers. Um, so yes. our collaborator on this is a, is, is a very talented um, scientist and clinician, uh, Dr. Brian Coburn. And uh, he sort of hammered us when we first went to him and showed him all our great uh, data <laughs> that we've done next generation sequencing on our blood samples from, our, from these bone marrow transplant patients at different stages. And he, what he showed us was you need to be able to sort out the contaminants yeah. From So when people say, oh, there are a lot of skin bacteria, yeah, there are a lot of skin bacteria because you're touching the pipette tips and all sorts of things. And yes. their next generation sequencing is incredibly sensitive. And so you have, to, right. you have to find a way to actually make sure that what you're looking at, and we showed him our list and he said, well, these are probably real, but you see all of these, those are all contaminants. <laughs> Right. And so you have to be able to be really, really careful. So you have to know uh, who's who's taking, you know, the who's who's work you're you're reading. But then getting back to the what we're able to show is that you we can actually we can look at the blood microbiome and we can show, for example, in those bone marrow transplant patients, we could see what was being cultured versus what was showing up in the next generation sequencing and trying to see what was valid and what wasn't. And, And what's interesting is that. In these bone marrow transplant patients, we can, you know, we saw we could see Fusobacterium nucleatum like you wouldn't believe, right? So there, there are species yeah. that are in there, and blood is not sterile, and these these were free floating, they were not in the neutrophils, and I think you're right. There's, you know, because there's lots of neutrophils in the blood, so they're going to be gobbling up as much as they can. Now the other thing is, yes, just because you get it on next generation sequencing doesn't mean that those bacteria were actually live or there. It could have just been yeah, their right. DNA floating around. So it, it, it's a yes. lot more complicated than just running your next generation sequencing and saying, Absolutely. "Oh, this is everything that, was, everything that was there." So it's super complicated, and we're we're working on it. I, I I can't say as much because we're still trying to figure out what's real and what's not. Yeah. I'm definitely... I, Jonathan, I've been hogging the stage. Go, go, do something. <laughs> I'd be curious. Um, and This is probably going to be more of a speculative response from you, but I've always been interested in understanding how you can translate, say, chair-side diagnostic devices and technologies out into the public to be more accessible. And what are the unique ways to do so? 
And so right. thinking about something that measures neutrophil oral slash inflammatory loads and how that's associated with different uh, phenotypes. Do you think there's a way that such a device could be useful, say, for professional athletes or high intensity athletes slash um, weekend warriors, et cetera, for being able to measure their level of fitness and or readiness? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's nothing. So one of the things we had to show with the FDA, what we're trying to show with it is for a test is that it it surplants or is a, is equal to and easy to use uh, from the standpoint of uh, comparing to the laboratory test for counting neutrophils, right? It's called something called a clear waiver. And ultimately, um, the test is easy enough to use that in theory, um, it should be able to be used and designed in such a way that it can be used at home. And I would hope that that would be uh, sort of the, the next level. Because ultimately, you know, we live in a world where, you know, it's important for the, our clinicians and our healthcare professionals to be able to have access to these things. But the next level is certainly for us to be able to do it at home so we can sort of be looking after the, looking, looking after ourselves on a, on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis as opposed to once every three or six months, depending on when you see your clinician. Um, I did notice that there was a center for... Um oral health and fitness in London that uh, kind of prioritizes um, fitness uh, athletes, elite athletes specifically, because they have a propensity to have a high um, oral pathology rate. So whether that's high cavities or um, inflammation in general, but I do, I do kind of wonder about that space. And I know they speculate that it's the kind of uh, sugary drinks that might be the culprit, but I do wonder if having, you know, um, you're always in tissue repair mode for training that hard. I do wonder if there's kind of a background of uh, inflammation that is lending to that excessive inflammatory right. profile. Well, I, I, yeah, and I think I, I know there's studies that have looked at. Um, that, you know, as when you're exercising, um, you get demargination of your, of your neutrophil. So your neutrophil count, if you took, if you take it for somebody who's worked out, their neutrophil count is higher. And the, the reason it's higher is because the neutrophils have demarginated, which means you have yeah. more activated neutrophils. Exactly. So that could also mean that you've got more neutrophils going into those tissues because they've got the right receptors right. on them and they're activated and that's what neutrophils do, right? So that could certainly impact on things and certainly increase the load of the neutrophils in the mouth, for example, or in the gut. Right. So, um, you know, I, I mean, I know you know this, that is a little bit of a, a side, but, you know, one of the reasons... Um, so when you eat one of the, it's believed that one of the reasons sort of fasting or, um, intermittent fasting has value is because whenever you eat something, your immune system gets activated, right. particularly even your neutrophils, yes. because it used to be the, the reason how we all got here is that food was not all sterile, right? And so any single time you ate something, you'd be ingesting huge amounts of bacteria. And so whenever you ate, the people, you know, those of us who survived, it's because our immune systems got activated to prevent infections from all the stuff we were eating. Uh, So the whole thing is the reason intermittent fasting works is because it actually decreases the amount of time your body's experiencing this inflammatory response. Right. Right. And so that's sort of the, you know, so again, you know, we can relate... I mean, I'm embarrassed, but I guess we're relating everything to neutrophils almost. 
<laughs> I mean, that's my preference. But <laughs> I do know other things exist. Actually, um, I, I do think that um, in the oral tissue, neutrophils are providing kind of that backdrop of immunology um, and immune surveillance. Now, obviously, they're not the only players. I think that they're just front forward in the oral cavity specifically. Um, in other mucosal tissues, it can it can be very different. But um, to that end, I do think that there are adjuvant qualities to our oral microbiome. And I know that this is something that I'm incredibly impassioned around, is that um, most everybody has a level of oral inflammation um, for whatever reason. But I think that perhaps this has been the um, issue behind some of the uh, efforts towards a mucosal vaccine and using the oral cavity in such a way to promote um, a, a seroconversion against a pathogen. And so I'm hoping that having a, an oral inflammatory evaluation that is so easy that somebody who's studying mucosal vaccines might just take this and evaluate the oral inflammatory load and control for that in their trials so that we could eliminate that backdrop of inflammation during the exposure and potentially understand how our inflammatory load is kind of positioning our immune profile and how we respond to pathogens in general. Um, and I'd love your commentary on that. Um, you're hired. When are you coming to work in my lab? Because <laughs> uh, I know you need another. You don't need another job. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, pile them on. Yeah. I'll, I'll take another job. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's in, yeah, that's insightful. Yeah, I mean, I, I buy what I buy what you're selling. <laughs> And, you know, that, that's the story I told you about the strep viridans and the perio versus the non-perio certainly suggests that, you know, that the mouth and especially the bacteria in the mouth are, in, you know, are either crossing or not crossing that membrane are, are inducing a, an antibody response, so, something you'd sort of expect. I mean, and so it shows you that the mouth is a place where you can um, – perhaps work on a vaccine or introduce it, or at least uh, that there is communication between the immune system and the mouth on a, on a constant basis. And apparently it goes in both directions. I think that that's the other. While the neutrophils are coming out, things are going in and, you know, you could certainly utilize that and it's a non-invasive way to do it. I think that's true as well. Yes. Uh, yeah, well, I, I'm excited for your chairside device. I'm looking forward to everybody taking it up um, as a regular practice. <laughs> I know I, um, I'll be talking about it. So hopefully, you know, we'll just keep screaming about it and somebody will um, take Absolutely. it up. When do you think it will be out and available? Um, I'm, I'm hoping by the end of the summer. And, uh, you know, you'll be able to, at least your, your dentists will be able to go online and purchase it and bring it into their offices. And, uh, hopefully my, the idea is, is that you should, every single time you go into the dentist, they'll be able to do this. You'll give them this, uh, you know, 30 second mouth rinse and they'll be able to tell you what your oral inflammatory load is and tell you if it's normal or if it's abnormal or really, really abnormal. <laughs> And then you'll be able to measure it from time to time so that they either need to see you more frequently or need to do other tests or need to institute therapy. And you'll be able to actually see if the therapies work or not. Yes. Uh, 
I actually think that the therapeutic space in the dental arena is um, slim and could use some enhancements. Yes. So I know I, you have some, I know you've got some I great hope. ideas on that, so that'll be good. <laughs> I, I, I could go all day. Yeah. Um, I know that uh, Jonathan has some other questions for you, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pass it back to you, Jonathan. Um, one question. Uh, I think might tie in a lot of this amazing dialogue we've had on the device and neutrophils is your particular path becoming a research physician and entrepreneur. Um, I feel like there is a lot of versions of entrepreneurship and business models that can play out in dentistry and oral care. Um, However, it's not always executed or taking the path that you've taken particularly. So I'd love to just hear more about (laughs) you reflect on that quite frankly. Right on the paths. Yeah. So um, I've been doing this for a long time. So I have, I've worked with companies. I've sat on their scientific advisory boards and I've certainly worked from, from that aspect, helping other people bring their, their things along and I've had some really good successes and hopefully some really amazing successes in terms of drugs that are coming to the market. Um, but from the, from the neutrophil invention, I sort of developed it, but then I licensed, I, I, I licensed it to a company because I recognized at some point I could only take it so far and I needed, uh, help to formulation, stability, getting it to, through the FDA, et cetera. I, I have too many things going on to do that myself. And so I've, I've licensed that, but then now, um, um, one of my postdocs is now my research assistant and now my business partner. We started a company focused on two aspects where we um, we do microbiome test development and do microbiome testing for various companies. We do microbiome uh, clinical. So we use the microbiome in clinical trials to help them test their various products. But then we also develop our own probiotics. And uh, I have a very, very, very talented business partner and research associate um, named Dr. Barbour, who um, um, has a lot of ex- experience in this space, uh, used to work with Bliss Technologies, which was one of the big probiotic firms out of New Zealand. So he's a lot of experience in the space, and we've um, actually patented, uh, we've got a patent pending on a strain of bacteria from the mouth that not only um, kills every single upper respiratory tract infection, uh, bacteria that causes pneumonia, including all the ones that are antibiotic resistance, but it also has this amazing immunomodulatory profile. So it produces a phosphorylated antibiotic, maybe, which is, in other words, it produces peptides that it's the first phosphorylated lantipeptide that actually is able to activate neutrophils. It actually recruits neutrophils, and it can actually switch M1. It actually switches macrophages to an M2 profile, and it also increases phagocytosis. So, it, 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 so not only is it amazing antibiotic profile, but it also antibacterial profile, but it also has an amazing immunomodulatory profile, and so. Um, and we've got some amazing papers coming out that it, it's got a whole bunch of other things wow. that wow. allow it to actually colonize the mouth. So it actually has receptors on it, produces proteins that allows it to actually stick, uh, stick to soft tissue surfaces. So it's, it's a really, really unique bacteria. It's only present in about 1% of patients who have healthy mouths. So it's, we found we isolated from healthy mouths, but it's in a very, very, very low, um, low abundance. 
So that's something that we're, we're, we're developing at the same time. So uh, in terms of the, you know, I, I really enjoy the entrepreneurial aspect um, because, um, you know, knowledge translation is an important thing. I, I love doing science. I love being a clinician, bringing it to patients. But, you know, I like to also be involved in the knowledge translation aspect because that ensures that um, whatever you find and develop, you can actually make sure that it gets to the end users. And I, I find the whole process now um, – I always tell everybody, they say, well, you're doing so much, but I also explain, my, I used to run, I used to do track and field, and my favorite event, although I was not good at it and didn't participate, was, was the decathlon. I always appreciated the decathletes because what do they do? They're really, really, like the best decathletes are really, really, really good at 10 events. They're not the best in the world at those 10 events. And I, I, I'm not sure that I have the, the focus or the ability to focus on just one event. I like the, the I like the, the I like that idea of being trying to be as good as you can, but in many events because I think in the end, you're that's for me at least that fits my personality where whereby I enjoy the holistic approach of doing all those different things. Yeah. So um, that, that that you know that's I sort of relate it back to my I used to run a lot do a lot of track and field and I always marveled at the decathletes at, and you know Canada has right now one of the best decathletes in the world and a guy named Michael Smith he's he's amazing yeah. and uh, I, I sort of uh, but I, I remember you know the Americans have had a lot of really good uh, decathletes over the years but it's been uh, uh, that's sort of the model that I tried to follow in the sort of clinician scientist entrepreneur realm is the, is the the holistic approach trying to be involved in everything. That's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. I, I think that's that's why we get along so well, because we just want to be involved in everything. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it's, it's, it's either that or like super FOMO. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But, although, but, 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 you <laughs> know, I think one key really, well, yeah, but one really important thing is, is that you have to be able to delegate. And, and, you know, the key to success, if you look at people who are successful, it's that old story, grade A people hire grade A people, grade B people hire grade C people. So you, you cannot be afraid. You have to hire people who are better than you are. <laughs> Otherwise, it, it just it just doesn't work. Right. And so you so yeah. I have to make yes, sure that absolutely. all the people that I work with are smarter than I am yes. and are better at any. So they may not be decathletes, but they have to be better at, at each one of those elements to help us move things, move things along. <laughs> yep. Amazing. Hey, I wanted to summarize this episode, this very thick, heavy episode. When Glogauer and I talk, we often get off the rails pretty, pretty fluidly, we'll say. And I think that happened numerous times. But all of what he has to share is so incredibly exciting and um, really points to all that we don't know in the oral cavity and how it is uniquely um connected to our vasculature health as well. So his device, his closing in on an FDA approval, and I think this will be incredibly helpful as we uncover the nuance of mucosal and oral immunology. I think there's um, really exciting opportunities. 
And I wanted to hit on a few of the other pieces that Glogauer had to share with us, specifically about his bone marrow transplant patient profile. So these are patients uh, that have to go through an incredible process um, where they have their bone marrow replenished with new stem cells. And so neutrophils, the, it's a white blood cell made <laughs> in your uh, bone marrow. And when you go through a bone marrow transplant, you cannot make neutrophils for a moment <clears throat> until you get that transplant. So then you have new neutrophils and you can study the trafficking. And so he has nicely indicated and shown with his data that uh, there's this unique phenomenon that happens where the neutrophils need to populate those mucosal tissues first. And if they have to populate a lot of neutrophils in the oral cavity, for example, such as in um, periodontal disease or somebody who has some oral inflammation, it takes them longer to populate the vasculature, and this could put you at risk. Risk for bacterial infection in your blood, and it could increase your risk of mortality. So just having that awareness that oral inflammation and periodontal disease puts you at risk for uh, a host of problems if you should have other health challenges. Having this very affordable chair-side device I think will be incredibly helpful in ways that I can't even possibly imagine. I, although I can imagine a few. So thank you for sticking through this episode. I know it was probably real thick. Um, but if you ever have any questions or want to geek out with me, do not hesitate. Reach out. Thanks for, thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. Jonathan, you had one more question about music. Yeah, a little internet sleuthing uh, suggests that you may play in a band. Uh, that's true. Yeah. At, of those 10 things I do, it's the one that's on the lowest level in terms of proficiency. But I, yeah, I, I, I play in a band. We do a lot of covers. So, uh, nice. it's the perfect way to relax because when I'm playing music, I'm not thinking about any of my other problems. Uh, you have to really focus and it's the, it's a great team sport, right? Because yeah. everyone's doing something a little different, but it's really, you're feeling really good about generating something with a team, which is exactly like science, right? If you're doing it, if you're doing science properly, if you're doing entrepreneurship properly, you're, you're doing it as a team. Everybody's pulling their own weight and doing something different brings a little bit something different to it. And sort of like music sort of emulates or captures that same essence uh, of sort of the, the whole process of what we were just talking about. Okay, but what kind of covers? Oh, anything from uh, the late 60s all the way up into covers. So um, I'm going to, now I'm going to, you're all going to get disappointed in me because one of my favorites, uh, <laughs> one of my Impossible. favorite, like I, I'm a huge Neil Diamond fan. Excellent. So, you know, Excellent. we're doing Sweet Caroline and we're doing Solitary Man. Yes. And, uh, but then, you know, okay. we're, we're doing all the way, we all, you know, we do cars, you know, yes. um, so, you know, all, okay. all the music I grew up with. And then, you know, we also do some stuff from, from today, but, you know, um, but that's what, uh, you know, you have to do things you enjoy. And in a band, we only play songs we like. That's a good so, rule. You have to. That's yes, yeah. absolutely. Well, I would sing our way out of here, but I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and it's okay. I play bass and I don't sing, so it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
I surround myself with bassists. So my, my father's a bassist. My husband's Excellent. a bassist. Excellent. Jonathan, Excellent. I never asked you, are you a bassist? <laughs> no. Um, oh, I dabbled with guitar for uh, several years in college and grad school. I'm always interested in the bass and I love playing the bass, but I haven't dabbled with it. Yeah. I uh, I did not do any of those. I, <laughs> I stuck to um, piano, flute, saxophone, violin, and voice, actually. Sax is intense. Yeah, alto. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I play nothing now. Like, nothing at all. I just listen and sing poorly in the car. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for being with us today. Hey, thank you for having um, me. I really appreciate your time. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. I enjoyed it. I'm going to um, go ahead and close the show. And um, thanks for being here at Let's Get Oral. Let's get oral. Hey there, listener. If you made it this far, we want to genuinely thank you for listening to Let's Get Oral and giving us a chance. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite streaming platform, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else, and please share this widely with your friends, family, and coworkers. And if you haven't listened to our previous episodes, we highly recommend you check some of those in our catalog, such as the one we most recently published with Dr. Jonathan on, focus on the role aging and oral health play with each other. Until next time, keep smiling.